Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh! Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome into Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and this is our continuing trek through Major League Baseball history, one conversation at a time. If the name of today's guest is the reason you found us here, thanks for hitting play today. And I hope you enjoyed this conversation enough to hit subscribe and maybe go back and look at the names of the gentlemen I've had a chance to sit down with over the years and find a few more that you might be interested in listening to. For those of you who are new to hardball, I do think of these as conversations, not interviews. I hope that every episode just sounds like two guys talking about the game, their careers, the games and moments that matter to them as well as to the fans. It's why I will say that while each of these men have teams they are most closely associated with, there's a good chance the conversation extends beyond those walls. The men they played with and against, the wins, the losses, the very humble beginnings for most, and when done right on my part, reflections and stories some that haven't been thought of in years, and some never heard before. Before I do get to today's guest, my ask is that if you enjoy what you hear, you do hit subscribe and maybe rate and review if you are listening on Apple or iTunes. It does help get the word out of our very tiny piece of the podcast world, and it allows my partner in this, Keith Ippolito, to have his work in the openings and closings to be rightfully heard. If you leave a review in the next couple of weeks, I've got a new giveaway going on. i got a John Smoltz signed baseball, so let me know at at Chris Domino on Twitter to qualify after you post it. Greg Maddox. He becomes the youngest and most recent inductee to the Hall of Fame on hardball. I'll go over some of the numbers. I don't have time to go over them all, but here's what you need to know. If the Hall of Fame ever had the inner circle of Hall of Famers, the elite of the elite in their own separate wing, Greg Maddox's plaque will be one of the first they take off the wall where it is and move to the mythical higher ground. Let's start with this. From 1988 to 2006, Greg Maddox threw a minimum of 200 innings every year but one when he threw 199 and a third in 2002. For 17 straight seasons, he won at least 15 games. That's an all-time consecutive record and tied with Cy Young for the most times ever done. He's the winningest pitcher of the 90s. He went back-to-back years with sub-180 ERAs. The last guy to do that was a guy named Walter Johnson. Since 1920, only five seasons where a pitcher went sub-165 Maddox did it two of those times. And here's the most amazing ERA fact possibly of all time. Greg Maddox went 163 in 1995, and the league ERA was 423. Here's the elephant in the room. That was the year of the juiced ball, and he pitched through the obvious stretch of juiced players and is one of the not-enough guys, perhaps, who never had that whisper spoken as he walked by. 355 wins, four straight Cy Youngs, and a fifth, second, and fourth place on the resume as well. 
3,000-plus strikeouts. Yeah, he did that too while walking fewer than 1,000 batters, and that's ridiculous. Of course, 18 gold gloves and stories all over the place that recount his ability to recall almost every pitch he's ever thrown and how he once gave up a home run to Jeff Bagwell during the regular season because he was setting him up for a possible postseason at bat. Here's the other thing you need to know about Greg. He's had his number retired in both Chicago and Atlanta. He spoke for less than three minutes at both ceremonies. His Hall of Fame speech was 10 total. Today, we get three times as much. We talk about the draft, the minor leagues, the call-up, and, of course, the World Series win. But you will get more. Who mistook him for a bat boy on his first day in the bigs? His first postseason start and why it went the way it did. Self-reflection at its best. How close he came to becoming a Yankee. Teammates and opponents. Throwing a Maddox. And like every pitcher, he gets mad at me when he thinks I sell his home run power short. And what he ultimately thinks about his career. I had the pleasure to see a lot of his starts, and I've spoken to a lot of men who called him the easiest 0 for 4 they've ever left the ballpark with. Here's two more things. His plaque in the Hall of Fame does not have a C or an A on it, and it caused a stir for a few minutes in both cities. It shouldn't have. It was the perfect thing to do. And while he is the 12th highest voting percentage player in Hall of Fame history, there are 16 idiots out there who didn't vote for Greg Maddox an offense that should have gotten them banned from ever voting for anything ever again. I really enjoyed this one. Mad Dog, the professor, and of course, Doggy to his teammates. Episode 31 of Hardball, Greg Maddox. He's calculated to the T. There's nobody you'll ever meet more calculated than Greg was. Well, we were talking about would there be some payback. Jose Canseco thinks there was no accident to that pitch and is not very happy about it. And now the benches are slowly but surely coming onto the field. The offensive line getting in front of Greg Maddox on the other side. I'll tell you this. If you did something outside of the rules of what you were supposed to do, it ticked them off. Hello. Ooh. How ridiculous is that? I mean, that's part of pitching. You come up and in on guys, not necessarily because they hit a home run. Hershiser and Maddox are very calm in that whole thing. Two choir boys in the middle of a riot. An overreaction by Eddie Murray. Everyone thought because he wore glasses, he was this professor and he would answer every crossword puzzle and, you know, he's a great golfer and all this. You know, that, that's the stuff we'll have to live with going on. Well, I'll tell you what, it does tell you something about Maddox and his competitiveness. They're getting a little bit too comfortable. And this is a guy that when he pitched for the Cubs, he said, what is the knockdown sign? He looks like a guy that wants to sell you insurance, but he means business. And this is part of pitching. Well, friend, Greg Maddox does join us today on the Hardball Podcast. Greg, how are you uh, with everything that's going on in the world? Actually, we're doing good. Uh, you know, the, uh, most of the family's healthy. My dad had the COVID, but he beat it. And uh, But, you know, the wife and kids were all healthy. And, uh, you know, we're just, you know, trying to protect ourselves and the people around us and uh, watching a lot of Netflix. <laughs> I'd ask you, we don't have the time, I'd ask you to give me the rundown of things that I'm supposed to be watching that I might not have yet. Uh, are you gainfully employed as a volunteer coach these days or as a paid coach these days? How's the employment situation for you? No, I'm not. I'm not. I uh, 100% retired right now. Okay. I uh, I was coaching last year when the COVID hit, and uh, I didn't go back and uh, officially 100% retired. And uh Actually enjoying it, Good. you know. Uh, the, the baseball season started up for us last week, and uh, 
it was nice to go sit in the stands and just enjoy the game instead of trying to figure out the game. Did you ever think you'd be old enough to watch your son in college? Now, thank God, gainfully unemployed, and you're enjoying it. But the, but the idea of watching your son pitch, uh, more nerve-wracking than anything you've ever done with a baseball in your hand? Uh, it's not really because, you know, I trust him. He uh, has a really good feel for what he's doing out there. Uh, you know, plus, geez, he's a six-year redshirt COVID senior. So, I mean, he's like a uh, – He's a grown-ass <laughs> he, man. <laughs> yeah, he gets it. Yeah. He gets it. And he uh, he decided he uh, wanted to go back for his master's. And so he's doing that and, uh, and enjoying one more year of baseball. So uh, – he gets it. It's fun. I, I, I could actually sit there and relax and right. trust him 100% what he's going to do on the mound. What was your – was there a college backup plan if the draft didn't go the way that you wanted for you? Uh, yeah. I mean, I was going to go to University of Arizona. I'd signed my letter of intent to go there and, and, and play down in Tucson. And, uh, you know, I got drafted higher than I thought I was going to be drafted. And, you know, the bottom line is I, I, I wanted to be a baseball player. Uh you know, so I knew 100% in the back of my mind I was I wanted to be a baseball player, and you know the best shot to do that was to skip to skip college and give it a shot. And then if it didn't work out, I could always go back to college. That was kind of the plan back then. I, I don't want to make it 1953, but was there a moment at the kitchen table when the Cubs come in, or, or do you sign it before they even walk in the door and just say, "Listen, I'm good to go." Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it was it was kind of weird because. Uh, the day of the draft was our class trip and I had saved for two years to go to Hawaii on my class trip. So, uh, uh, I had got on the plane probably an hour or two into the draft and I hadn't been drafted yet. And, uh, you know, back then there were no cell phones. Mm -hmm. So it was, uh, you know, it was five hours on the plane when I landed in Hawaii, I called home and, you know, the dad, you know, uh, my dad told me that, uh, the Cubs drafted me in the second round and, uh, you know, I had a week in Hawaii, and when I came home, the contract was all worked out and signed it and headed off to uh, Pikeville, Kentucky. I was going to ask you, being away from home in Pikeville, Kentucky, for a 17- or 18-year-old at that point, uh, nervousness, yeah. what, what, was the, what was the overriding emotion, if you can remember? Well, it was tough. You know, it was my first time away from home, and, and I'm in Pikeville, Kentucky. It's a, it's a real small town, obviously, in Kentucky. Uh, Moorhead State University was there. We stayed in their dorms. Uh, we played our games on a high school field and, uh, you know, after about two or three weeks of being on a bus around the Appalachian mountains, I was like, geez, did I make the right decision? I mean, I could still be enjoying my summer in Vegas, getting ready to go to Arizona. And, and, uh, uh, there was some doubt. Luckily though, uh, I had a couple college teammates on my team that kind of took me under their wing a little bit and, you know, we started playing cards and, you know, having a beer and, and you know, uh, talking baseball and stuff like that. And it's, it's, it started to make it a lot easier for the second half of the season. And, uh, you know, luckily those guys were there because, you know, I was 18, I was homesick and, uh, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was a tough adjustment for the first couple months. And, and, you know, once I kind of learned a little bit of the baseball life and playing every day, uh, things got a lot better. You know, it's interesting. It's the want to get out, especially look, you're in Pikeville, Kentucky, as you said. You're away from home. But it is interesting when I talk to guys who end up playing in the major leagues, they look back at the minor league stuff with a little bit more fondness. Look, everybody does eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and all those stories about being on long bus rides. I'm not seeing in the moment it's great. 
But it is kind of interesting to hear guys talk about being in the minor leagues with a little bit more affection towards the idea of teammates and and the things that you guys all went through trying to get to the place where you wanted to go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we're all in the same boat. You know, we're all first-year players or second-year players. And and as you start to move up, you know, I remember going to AAA for the first time, and all of a sudden guys are married with kids. And, you know, there's kind of a little bit of a separation right there. You know, I think, uh, uh, ooh, we're not all in the same boat. You know, these guys have families, and they got five-year-olds running around. And, uh, you know, that's where it finally started to change. But, you know, I think think the guys you sign with in that year, that that – that you come up with, there, there's always going to be kind of a tighter bond. I, I think it was Tommy who actually said this to me, and I've heard it from other guys in football. Quarterbacks go to a place, and you look around, and you go, you know, there's six more like me. For the first time in your life, there were six more guys, seven more guys, eight more guys, where every bit as talented as you. And, and emotionally, yeah. that can wreck some guys and really put them behind the eight ball in terms of really trying to make their way out of the minor leagues. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's you know, it's tough because you're 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 competing against the other team, and at the same time, you're competing against your teammates. So, uh, uh, you know, it is. I mean, you know, I remember when I signed, and you know, my second year, I'm playing with last year's number one pick from Texas, and and this guy was a number two pick from that year, and and then you know, Drew Hall was uh, uh, drafted in my year, and Jamie Moyer, and. Uh, you know, there's a lot of competition going on amongst your teammates, but at the same time, you know, you kind of have your buddies and, and, you know, you kind of learn to pull for one another, even though you're competing against one another. What's your call-up story? Uh, very, let me see. Let's, uh, I was in AAA and our season had just ended. It was time for September call-ups. Uh, Fortunately, we weren't in the playoffs, so I mean, it sounds like the wrong thing to say, but I think that happens a lot in the minor leagues. Mm-hmm. Is uh, uh, our season had just ended, and uh, the coach called me in and told me I, was, I got called up and uh, I needed to leave for Chicago the next day, and uh, that was the last day of our season. And uh, remember Chico Walker? We had a player named Chico Walker. He was our second baseman. He got called up as well. So. Uh, I had my car. I had a car there, so the two of us drove up from uh, Des Moines, Iowa, to Chicago, and uh, we get about we get about 20 minutes outside the stadium in uh, Des Moines. We had just left, and Chico's got this weird look on his face, and he shakes his head and he's like, "Hey, doggy, I'm sorry, I forgot my wallet." So we had to turn around, and you know, you're all excited to go to the big leagues, and. And uh, had to turn around and head back to Des Moines. And, you know, now we're a little behind schedule. And, and sure enough, I get pulled over going back to Des Moines. And cops writing me a ticket. And uh, Chico Walker finds his wallet. Oh. <laughs> so, Welcome to the mix. Kind of makes for a fun story. You what know, you, I just you, got cr- What are you told when you walk into the to the clubhouse or the manager's office? Like, who, Who's the first person you speak to with the cops? The first person I spoke to was John Vukovic. I think I saw John Vukovic, and he was one of the coaches. He was the third base coach at the time, and uh, uh, he welcomed me. And uh, Don Zimmer was the manager, and or I'm sorry, Gene Michaels was the manager. And I didn't see Gene Michaels till right before the game. He was doing manager stuff, doing his press conferences, and. 
uh, doing the lineup and all that. And uh, I saw him about probably 10 minutes before the game. I was just sitting on the bench waiting for it to start, kind of looking around and, you know, enjoying Wrigley Field. And uh, John Vukovic goes to Gene Michaels. He goes, uh, are you going to meet your new pitcher? And, you know, I no one told me that I'm supposed to introduce myself to the manager back then. You know, now that's kind of one of the things you, you kind of tell the younger players, hey, make sure you introduce yourself to the manager so he knows who he is. So uh, I didn't do that. And Vukovic thought I was a bat boy because, you know, in Chicago, we had a different bat boy every day. And he thought I was he thought I was the bat boy. So he came down and, you know, we shook hands and uh, it was pretty cool. You know, my first game, the two pitchers were Jamie Moyer and Nolan Ryan. So that was my first game in the big leagues. I had, you know, the hardest thrower in baseball and the softest thrower in baseball going against one another. And, uh, you know, looking back on it, it just goes to show you that, uh, you know, pitching, it's not a speed game. You know, it's all about pitching and executing pitches and, and, and being able to uh, locate your fastball and change speed. So it was, uh, uh, looking back on it, it was pretty special day. And that's like 60 years of baseball between those two guys i mean it's it's ridiculous yeah when you look at it yeah and then you throw in 23 on top of that yeah i mean it's uh yeah it's pretty cool pretty good experience you do get to experience postseason in chicago speaking of pretty cool what's what's the vibe in the city in 89 when it's palpable that you guys have got a shot oh it was it was incredible i mean it was absolutely rocking i mean uh uh, you know, it was kind of like the tomahawk chop there, you know, the 90, 91, when they first started going through it, there's just an electric buzz in the city. And, uh, you know, I remember, you know, and the fans there are pretty cool too. I mean, it was, uh, I remember I started, I think it was game one or two. I forget which one I started against the giants and, uh, I got pummeled. I mean, I had pitched absolutely horrible and pretty much cost us the game and, and, you know, in Chicago, when you walk out to your car, there's a fence around the player's parking, and there's usually hundreds of fans out there. And, you know, they're loud and vocal. And and uh, I'm like, oh, this is going to be the kind of probably the worst walk of my life getting to my car right now. And, you know, I just remember walking out there, and all the fans, like, they started clapping and supporting and, you know, said, hey, don't worry about it. Get them in game five. And, you know, it was pretty special because, you know, I, I expected to walk through that gate and just get absolutely lambasted by everybody and uh i was wrong you know they were very supportive and you know it's just something i, I kind of never forgot about the fans of chicago because they're the pretty pretty special people really back their players do you do you look back on it now was it was it a bad night was it nervousness was there i mean when, when you say you got pummeled you didn't have many of those games in your career um yeah was it the moment at in any way shape or form do you think yeah, definitely. Definitely was the moment. I was 21 or 22 years old, 23. I forget how old I was. First time in the postseason and try to do too much. You know, I, uh, you know, every pitch was 100% and, you know, every fastball I was going to throw as hard as I could. And uh, I sacrificed location for that and, uh, you know, got hit, got hit because of it. And, uh, you know, and then it kind of happened to me again in game five. And, and uh, you know, that first year in the playoffs was very tough and, and you know, wasn't very good. I kind of I kind of got away from the things I did that, that allowed me, 
you know, that I did during the season for the last six months. It sounds pretty stupid, and it was pretty stupid, to be honest with you. But you, you've talked and, about uh, it like a math something. problem. You got away from the math problem that you talk about, where um, movement is better than velocity, location is better than yeah. movement. And and it really does, like, you, whether you learn the lesson after that, but it really does sound yeah. like you're honest about yeah. you got away from everything that you knew going into that series. Well, yeah, you can't lie to yourself. You know, you could lie to people. You can lie to your teammates and coaches, but you can't lie to yourself if, if, you, if you ever want to get better. And, uh, you know, that's something I believed in. So, you know, had an honest conversation with myself and, and, and understood, you know, why I felt. And, uh, you know, once I understood that, I was able to at least try to make the correct adjustments in case it ever happened again. You famously, I, th- I think it's a true story. I don't even know if I've ever asked you this directly. You, you famously say no to the Yankees in free agency. Do you not to come to Atlanta? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I went to New York to sign a contract, and uh, Atlanta was out of the picture. I mean, I, I, you know, back then it's kind of a long story, but yeah, the bottom line is, yeah, I ended up saying no to the Yankees to go to Atlanta. Atlanta was my first choice. You got to remember, this was back in '92, mm-hmm. and you know I wanted a shot at the World Series. I wanted a chance to win a ring, and you know at that at that time, uh, the Braves were a lot better than the Yankees. I know things turned out different over the next decade, but uh, you know the Braves had just gone to the World Series uh, the last two years, and and uh, you know they had a young team, and they had a hungry team, good team, and and good pitching, and. Uh, you know, at the time, I thought that was the best place to try and go get a World Series ring. Any trepidation about New York at all, as in what people have said about New York, or was it more just about, or quite honestly, flat only about wanting to get an opportunity? I think you got a call, did you not? Where I, I guess I do kind of remember the story. Did you get a call? Your agent said one more shot to Sherholtz. Is that sort of how it went? Well, no. Uh, I had talked to Sherholtz and said I wanted to play there, and he said. I need a week. I need to try to trade a player. And I said, okay. And uh, gave him a week. Sherholtz called me up and said, hey, it's not going to work out. We're not going to be able to do this. You know, do what you got to do. And the next day I went to New York. So New York was my second choice. And, uh, you know, I had flown to New York. I did the recruiting trip and had dinner. And Gene Michaels was a general manager again. It's weird. He was my first manager in Chicago. Now he's a general manager in New York. And, uh, uh, you know, we had dinner. We went and saw a show. We drove around the suburbs. And, and, uh, you know, he was just kind of showing me New York. And, you know, it's not all Grand Central Avenue and, and all that. You know, there's a lot more to it than that. And he was just showing me that side of it. And, uh, you know, it was kind of weird because they never offered me a contract. And then the morning came, we had our flight back to Vegas. So we had a layover in Chicago. So I called Scott thinking the Yankees were going to call him with an offer on the way home. And when I landed in Chicago, Scott said, well, the Braves made an offer as well. And, uh, I said, okay, the years. I said, okay, to do your Scott Boris stuff and get the best deal you can in Atlanta. I want to play in Atlanta. And then in that three hours from Chicago to Vegas, Atlanta had made their offer, and I had, I had taken it. Um, I want to fast forward because the World Series in 93, no Philadelphia strike, no no 94 playoffs at all. Am I right about yeah. this? What's my recollection? Did you? 
I guess I'll use the word. Did you throw at Eddie Murray in one of those World Series games? Oh, no, I didn't throw at him. I didn't throw at him. Uh, what happened was is who's the lefty? They had a lefty hitting right before Eddie Murray. I forget who it was. And uh, they had – it might have been Bayerga. I think Bayerga was hitting, and I threw him a cutter, and I didn't get it in enough. I kind of left it, like, right down the middle. And, you know, one of my thing was is I always pitch off my last pitch, and it was a bad pitch, and he had fouled it off or something. I got away with a mistake. And then Albert Bell comes up, hits the home run. Eddie Murray comes up, and now I need to throw Eddie Murray a cutter. And, you know, five, six pitches ago, I'd left my last cutter over the middle. Mm -hmm. So I'd say, hey, I've got to make sure I get it in. And I kind of overdid it a little bit. And uh, it came up and in. It looked bad. I had just given up the home run. And uh, Eddie had a, had a reaction to it. And then, you know, the reaction was I couldn't back down because I don't want to show any weakness in that right. situation. And and it looked like I threw at him, but I didn't. Okay. You know, I, I mean, it's the World Series. You're not going to throw guys in the World Series, especially in the first inning. You know, I think uh, uh, the last thing you want to do is give up 90 feet because of uh, – <laughs> I don't know, ego or a personal problem. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the last thing you're going to do. And I think that was a game four, because I thought it was Hershiser. Was it Hershiser who sort of hose up a little bit at that point? Yeah, Hershiser was asking if I threw at him, and because uh, he goes, I got the ball, too. I got the ball, too. Did you throw at him? I got to know. You know? <laughs> I, said, I said, well, I didn't throw at him, but if you want to throw at somebody, that's up to you, man. I mean, <laughs> it's kind of like... You know, we were down runs at the time. The last thing he wanted to do was throw at somebody and put an extra guy on base. How important, looking back, was it to win a World Series? Uh, because you've known. Very important. Yeah, I mean. 100%. You know, it's it's the highlight of my career, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, you play for 23 years, and I bet I played for 22 of those years trying to, trying to get to the World Series. And, uh you know, to win one is very special. Yeah, we could have won more. I know that. Looking back, you know, we had 14 shots at it. You know, and to only win one seems kind of, kind of, you know, kind of bummer. But, uh, you know, we did, we did win one, and you know, I do have my ring. I'll still show it off today if people that come to the house and want to see it. I'm more than happy to pull it out of the drawer and show it to them. And and it's funny, you know, you, you get stuff for being in the Hall of Fame, but it is the ring that that everybody does want to see, and rightfully so, because that's what everybody says with the right mindset. That's what they're playing for. What, yeah. about, what, what yeah. about the parade? The parade was cool. The parade was cool. You know, it was, uh, <laughs> you know, you kind of get in your own little world, mm-hmm. you know, on the baseball field, you know, the kind of that saying, it's us against the world. Right. You know, you hear that a lot in the locker room, and uh, you kind of live in your own bubble during the season, and, uh, you know, you're focused on trying to, you know, be as good as you can be. And, and you know, you kind of walk everything out around you. It's almost like you put on a crash helmet, you know, where everything you hear and see or say kind of just hits and bounces off. And, uh, you know, during that parade, I remember you kind of take off your helmet, you know, and kind of hear all the people and see all the people and and realize that, you know, these people are like more more excited than you are about winning the World Series, and and that that was pretty cool. And it's pretty cool, like you go around your neighborhood and 
and your neighbors are thanking you for winning the World Series. I mean, I never expected to hear thank you from from my neighbors for for kind of winning the World Series. So that was pretty cool. You know, they've been Braves fans a lot longer than we'd all been Braves fans. So it was pretty special to uh, get them. At, at what point do you realize, I don't know if it's the four Cy Young, 250 wins, 300 wins, where young guys in camp are looking at you, like maybe they want to approach you, maybe they want to talk to you, maybe they want to. There is a point when all of a sudden you sort of become not just the older guy because it says so on the birth certificate, but when you become as accomplished as you did, do you notice uh, in camp that guys maybe want to walk up to you, maybe want to? I don't know, let's pick your brain, sit at the feet, do yeah. whatever the hell it is. Yeah. I mean I noticed it. I noticed I noticed it my first six years in Chicago. You know, after you have a little bit of success, you know, after my second or third year it started happening. You know, I think it happened for me. I know when I was my first couple of years, I was going up to Rick Sutcliffe and B. Smith and Scott Sanderson, uh, Goose Gossage. I mean, I was going up to these guys and and asking them you know, Sutcliffe would sit in the video room with me and try to help me, you know. Uh, I remember later on in my career that I would sit in the video room and try to help my other teammates. So, I mean, it's kind of something that I had coming up, and you try to pass it down on your way out. Before I get to a little bit of word association, if I would have asked you when you were drafted, what were you hoping for in a career? I know when you get up and you get slapped around a little bit, you're hoping to get the baseball in five more days. But, but the, the idea of what you hoped this could actually be? Yeah, well, I mean, no, it was everything more. I mean, I think if you look back to the day you're drafted, the first thing you want to do is is when you're in, when you're in, in rookie ball, you, you you never want to go back. You want to go to A ball. When you're in A ball, you don't want to go back. You want to go double A. You know, you're always trying to move up that step. And and uh, you know, Billy Connors was my pitching coach after my rookie season, and, and he asked me, he goes, "How good do you think you can be in this game, or how good do you want to be in this game?" And uh, I never asked myself that question. And uh, he goes, well, why don't you just kind of apply yourself and just find out how good you can be? And, uh, you know, ever since that day, that was after my first year in the big leagues when I stunk. I was 6-14. and 14. And, uh, you know, I kind of stopped worrying about winning or losing and making money and getting called up or sent down. And, you know, I just started worrying about, okay, what can I do today to make myself a better pitcher? And uh, that was kind of the attitude. I ended up taking that attitude for like the next 20 years. You know, just try to win the day. Try to do something today that's going to make me better for my next start. Do you have a guy, is it fair to ask? It's not. I'm not going so far as to ask you who your favorite child is, but do you have a guy that you face that you like the challenge more than others? Is there one or two guys that you just said, hey, man, if it's me and him and four ABs today, I'm a little bit more excited than I normally am? Well, I mean, you know, you always you – always, there was always something about facing, you know, Tony Gwynn and Barry Bonds and Mike Piazza, Gary Sheffield, you know, uh, Larry Walker. You know, there was always something about facing the top hitters in the league. You know, I think uh, – uh, and, and at the same time, those guys also were a very valuable lesson that kind of taught you to beat lineups and not hitters. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you, you couldn't really – you know, you had to kind of – you kind of – Fights, you know, you got to get 27 outs, and, and uh, you know, I don't think you want to face Barry Bonds, you know, seven or eight times in the same game, you know, to, to try to get those outs. But uh, you know, you always enjoy facing the good hitters, and and uh, you know, 
the last thing you want, probably the worst thing or the last thing you ever want to do was, was to give up a pitcher. You know, that was like kind of the toughest at bats for me because you're in a no-win situation. You got to get the pitcher out. And when you didn't get that nine-hole spot out, you know, if you get yeah. the nine-hole out times, that's one inning that makes it a game. I don't know if he has grandchildren yet, but you do realize Mickey Morandini is going to be telling his grandchildren yeah. someday about the numbers he's yeah. against you. Yeah, yeah, he was he, yeah he was a prick. I couldn't get that dude out. I mean, uh, throw it away. He hit it left center, throw it in. He hit right center. It was just uh, one of those matchups, and uh, yeah, he was a, for some reason very very tough out for me. Real quick, favorite non-Braves teammate? Give me, give me a guy, Los Angeles, San Diego, somebody that you really enjoyed. That look, playing in one year. Non-Braves teammate. Yeah, just well, a guy you enjoyed. God, I had a lot of them. You know, I, I enjoyed Derek Lowe in uh, L.A., uh, Ryan Dempster, Glendon Rush in Chicago. You know, Jake Peavy and David Wells in San Diego. I mean, uh, you know, my first stint in Chicago. You know, Sutcliffe and uh, Damon Berryhill. Of course, I played with him in Atlanta as well. Rafael Palmero. I mean, uh, uh, you know, there's always two or three guys in every team you're on that you're gonna hang with and play golf with or sit on the bench with, talk baseball with. So, uh, you know, had a lot of special guys over the years. All right, let's finish up with the Hall of Fame. Uh, how nervous were you speech-wise? Surprisingly, I wasn't. I really expected to be nervous, but... Uh, uh, enjoyed it. It was an easy speech. I mean, I kind of wrote most of it, so I knew it mm-hmm. and uh, uh, enjoyed the moment. You know, I tried to make it not too boring for the 50 guys sitting behind me. You know, I think uh, uh, I wanted to be quick, you know, and uh, I, and I wanted to say what I wanted to say, and uh, I was able to do that. So, uh, you know, looking back, it was it was a memorable experience. Is that Sunday night when it's just that room? They basically locked the doors that first time. Uh, how incredible is that room? That Yeah, that's pretty cool. I mean, that was pretty special. And you know what was cool, too, because, uh, you know, Glad was there mm-hmm. and Bobby. I had some teammates there with me. Yeah. So I wasn't on my own. You know, I had someone to share it with. And, and uh, you know, I'll never forget. Uh, I had no idea what a great storyteller Tom Seaver was when he started telling stories and, you know, everybody's got a little wine in them and, and all the, all the stories are flying around the, around the room left and right. Just to sit there and listen to these guys talk about things that happened in their careers was uh, obviously a very special, very special evening. And you're talking about a thread from really the 1930s somehow in that room all the way up to the night you're actually sitting in it. It's like one degree of separation yeah. from the greatest and the yeah. greatest and the greatest of the game. Really cool. I mean, I remember being, you know, five, six years old and playing baseball, and we were huge Reds fans. So, you know, we were imitating, you know, Pete Rose, Joe Morgan, Tony Perez, George Foster. We're, we're imitating all these guys as kids, and, and, you know, we're trying to play like them. And, and then, you know, to, to to walk into that room and see Johnny Bench and Joe Morgan and Tony Perez in there and Tom Seaver, he played on the Reds as well. To see those guys in there, for me, it was like, you know, it was a pretty cool thing. Yeah. Let, let me, you're not a dig me guy, and I look, I can go over the numbers, and I don't know how much you know the numbers. 
Uh, you hit two home runs in a season. I don't know if that's the number, but is there is there a number or is there something that you did in your career? And, again, not to play the smell me, dig me moment. I get that. Yeah. But is there something yeah. that you sort of hold on to that you go, hey, that one I'm, I am I kind of will, I will yeah. mention? Yeah. Well, I hit five homers, not yeah. two. That's no, 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 one. two in a year, two, two in a season. <laughs> no, two I one year. That. Yeah. Five I know altogether. That, but I hit five. Yeah. I hit five. I think it took me like 11 years to hit for the cycle. I finally hit a triple in uh, uh, Miami against <laughs> the Marlins. I remember that pretty special because, you know, I'd never had a triple for like, you know, 10, 11 years, and to finally get one was pretty special. But, you know, obviously, I mean, winning the World Series caps it off, you know, to go out there and, and, uh, uh, to pitch game one against Cleveland and, and to win that game was was pretty special hurdle. It would have been nice to win the second start, but Glad picked me up the, uh, the next day. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, you know, winning the World Series was hands down the, the highlight of it all. But you do understand 355. You do understand Cy Young. You do understand the lifetime ERA, 100-plus games over. Yeah. I mean that that's yeah. that's beyond heady. That's that's the one percent of the one percent of the one percent. Yeah, I'm pretty proud of the 350 because that's longevity. Mm-hmm. You know, that's doing it pretty good for a long time. You know, uh, very proud of that. Very proud of the fact that I played for over 20 years. I mean, uh, you know, the, the the longevity. I think I appreciate as much as anything. I was able to stay healthy. You know, I had a a very good trainer in Las Vegas. Uh, I think I was one of the first guys to do shoulder exercises back in the 80s. Huh. You know, I was doing the stuff that Frank Tanana was doing when he was rehabbing from rotator cuff surgery. Uh, so I was, I felt like I was a little bit ahead of the game as far as taking care of your arm goes, you know. Can I tell you and, what I uh, saw? Can I tell you what I observed, though? Really, I, I, yeah. I mean this now. I think there were guys, and look, you had success, so it's not like you were in your own head a lot. You probably had to fix things like everybody else. But your mechanics, your delivery, the repeatability of what it is you did is amazing to me because I think guys sometimes, well, i got to try to do this now, and i got to try to fool them this way. And and I would imagine if you threw side-by-side video of you, there aren't many days where it doesn't look like you. If you took the number and the name off the back of the jersey, you'd say, okay, that's who that is. That's That's really hard to do. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, one of the keys, I mean, you know, one of the one of the goals is to be consistent. I mean, you always set your goals. Your goals are, you know, win a World Series, win a Cy Young, win 20 games, pitch over 200 innings. And you also want to be consistent, you know, and I think uh, uh, being consistent was one of my things, you know, and that was where I learned from Goose Gossage in uh, Chicago. You know, Goose, Goose used to always say, don't get too high, don't get too low. And, you know, you'd sit there, you know, you're a young kid, and you're like, what's this guy talking about? You know, why is he always saying this crap every day? And then, uh, you know, the season starts, and, you know, he saves about two or three games in a row, and and he's the same goose. And then he goes out there, and he blows one. And, you know, he could, after the game, he's the same goose. And I'm going, that's what he's talking about. You know, don't get too high and don't get too low. Be consistent with your with your attitude and your routine, and and just realize it's a long haul. There's going to be uh, ups and downs throughout the season, and you know when you're down, don't panic, and when and and when you're up, don't try not to get too high. So, uh, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to 
follow his example yeah, that he, he had kind of set for me as a young player. Here's the last thing. You also, that when you know what, I'm assuming you know what a Maddox is, right? You've heard about it. Yeah. That. Okay. Well, yeah. You lead the world in Maddoxes, so thank God. You don't want anybody to really take that away from you because it's not a Maddox anymore. Uh, I remember a game. I was in New York one day in an interleague game against the Yankees. We were afraid we were going to miss our plane because we were just there for the day. I don't, I don't know if you threw 86 pitches, 87 pitches. It was, it was an absurdly low amount. But the one that I remember more than that, did you not have a 68-pitch game against the Giants? Uh, Cubs. Against, okay. Yeah. 68 yeah, pitches. Six, something like that, 68 or 72. I gave up a run, too, so it really wasn't a considered a Maddox. <laughs> You're right. The shutout thing just went out the window. You, yeah. you realize rolling a guy over is just as good as going in a nine-pitch at bat, which is the thing I think young guys better learn. I know the blow-away stuff exists, but, my God, if you can have an eight-pitch yeah. inning, it's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. Well, you know, if you throw a little bit slower, then they don't hit the foul balls. You know, that was always Smoltz's problem. Smoltz would go out there and, and throw 130 pitches, and, you know, I'd go out there and throw 90, and Smoltz would always, like, be mad, like, how do I do that? And I'm like, well you got to throw softer because every time you throw the ball by him, they foul it off. <laughs> you know, you just get more foul balls. So, you know, it was just kind of my style of pitching was uh, I wasn't a swing and miss guy. I was more of a off the end or off the hands type of pitcher. And, uh, uh, you know, I tried to pitch off the barrel of the bat and that was how I learned how to pitch, you know, keep it off the barrel where, you know, today and, and a lot of guys back then was, well, you got to miss the bat. Mm-hmm. And I was never trying to miss the bat. I was trying to miss the barrel. And you mentioned Tony. I, I'll also say the two numbers, and Tony had over 300 stolen bases. Nobody knows that. You had over 3,000 strikeouts. I think people were aware of that as the Hall of Fame career was winding down. But you talk about not having swing and miss stuff. You struck out like 3,200 guys, though. Yeah, you get your strikeouts. I mean, you know. You know, you go out there long enough and you keep getting your four or five at night, it's going to add up. And that's kind of what happened with me. I didn't have a lot of big strikeout games. You know, I probably had less than a handful for my career. And, uh, you know, it's just longevity. Again, it goes back to just, you know, being being decent for a long time makes you pretty good. Well, uh, better than pretty good. Listen, Greg, I know you got to run. I really, really appreciate the time. Always enjoy catching up with you. I'm glad to hear the family as well. Go hit them straight today. Uh, Believe th- it. Thanks for this. Thank you. I really do appreciate it. All right. Okay, All right, Chris. Take thanks, care, man. man. Have a good day. We'll Thank Bye-bye. you. One who's going to be in control, so you have to take what he gives you, and you know, hopefully, you can put the bet on it. But for the most part, when he's on, it's going to be a long night. Fifty-one thousand plus on their feet. Nobody's left to beat the traffic tonight. I guarantee you. I, I can remember John Sherholtz walking to my office in spring training one year. He says. A starting pitcher is wanting $10 million a year, a starting pitcher. And I said, John, who are you talking about? I said, you talking about Maddox? He said, yeah. And I said, yeah, $10 million a year is fine. <laughs> He's the best agent you had, man. <laughs> Mark gets the sign. The wind and the pitch. Here it is. Swung. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes! You've never been to the mound so far this year. I said, well, what for? What do you, you know, you're doing great. He goes, well, you know, it gets kind of lonely out there. He said, so I'm going to look in in the sixth inning, and when I look in, come on out and pay me a visit. He said, I'm tired of talking to Chipper. He said, the umpires, yeah, you got to pick your spots with the umpires. He said, and Eddie, Eddie Perez don't speak English. Rollers get them one, two, three. A couple 
I get often asked, was he the best pitcher I ever saw? Was he the smartest pitcher I ever saw? Was he the best competitor I ever saw? Was he the best teammate I ever saw? And the answer is yes to all of the above. Quite a pitcher, and I want to congratulate Greg and his family for being inducted into the Braves Hall of Fame. And it won't be too many more years. If I can live long enough, I made this one. I'll see him in Cooperstown. Congratulations, Greg.